Welcome, listeners, to Glam City, where we go behind the scenes of the glamorous world of history and investigate the cultural institutions of the Glam fam, like galleries, libraries, archives and museums, who tell us stories about ourselves. Today I'm joined by Tamsin Peach. Hey, Tamsin. Hello, Anna. You're back. I am back and raring to go. And today we're not just talking about glam institutions, we're also talking about making history. People make history every day, don't they, Anna? But we are making history at History Lab. And in the studio is the wonderful Tom Allenson and Jason Lecuyer, and they are the producers of History Lab Podcast. We are. Hi, Tamsin. Hi. And normally you don't hear their voices, so this is great. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're up from a bit of comeuppance <laughs> behind the microphone this time. Tom, you should, like, with a voice like that, you should be behind the microphone a hell of a lot more. <laughs> so if you haven't been listening to History Lab Glam City listeners, I encourage you to take out your eye devices right Right now, and go to a podcast app and put in History Lab. It is another initiative of the Australian Centre for Public History and to SER, a great collaboration. It is Australia's first investigative history podcast, launched earlier this year in late May, early June, with a four-part series that included stories that may be familiar to you on Lundy Chamberlain, the Titanic. Yeah. Now, you might think we're just self-promoting, but there are actually lots of questions about making history and the podcasting space that I think are really interesting to tease out right now. There's some sort of moment both in the glam world where people are making and doing history, not just institutions, but also everyday listeners and historians, family historians, for example. And conversely, these glam institutions are trying to make history that generates different audiences and new audiences and asks historical questions or ask questions of the past that will develop new types of history making. Tom, you've taken over as executive producer for season two of History Lab. Can you tell us what an executive producer does? Right, well... So I is was, it basically I was a like a historian but on radio or is it different? Well, we try not to be on radio. We try <laughs> to avoid that. Um, basically, a producer would work together with our collaborating historians to treat their work. That ends up being a bit of a relationship where we work together, where the producer actually learns a whole lot about how historians do what they do. And we're hoping some of that process comes out in the episode. And in terms of making the sound, when you drive a car, you're driving, you know, on a road, it's a particular dimension, you can stop, you can turn left or right. I'm wondering if it's a little bit like then getting into an aeroplane and you can go up and down and you have to, you know, you can move left and right. It's actually a different dimension of storytelling. Is that analogous? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think probably one of the differences is would be that the medium is different. It's audio as opposed to writing something. And then there are different ways of telling a story. Obviously, you can tell it just by having the presenter explain a story, or you could have the producer write this omniscient god character to explain how things happened. Then you've got to figure out how to incorporate those into the story. So you're writing with people's voices in mind as well, which adds that extra dimension. And from a producer's standpoint, there's this story that you're trying to tell, and then you might have four people's take on it at various aspects, and you have to write up to and around those voices. So that's that's a key difference. Would it be fair to say that you know what the story is before you set out? You have an idea of what the story is when you set out. And 
oftentimes it ends up being completely different. In the case of ours, we had a task. We were going to go out and look for the first deposit into the Bank of New South Wales. And we went out searching for that deposit, and then that just snowballed into a whole other story. Banking Royal Commission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're responsible for that. years later. <laughs> yeah, we'll claim that. Yeah, so we set out with a question, and then it was kind of answered, and then led to more questions and totally changed the project. Welcome to history, Jason. Mm. Mm. I like it. I mean, that sounds to me a lot like the historical method. And what I love about History Lab is that often the story that each episode tells is the story of finding out the answer rather than... Or more questions, even. Yeah, that's right, which leads, as Jason said, to more Mm. questions. And, you know, in the process, we learn a lot, in your case, about the 1820s. But the real story is following you as Mm -hmm. you learn... Yeah. How to make sense. As of, we do history. As you do history, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and realising that there is no one narrative, mm. I think. There were multiple dimensions to it. There were multiple ways to tell the story from the side of the bank, from the side of the people who were involved in the bank, the bank as an institution, Governor Lachlan Macquarie at the time. There, there are many ways of telling it. Mm. The method is the story. We go to the archives and then we go to the Mitchell Library and then we go to Trove and we're actually figuring this out as we go along and we recorded it as we went. So doing history makes the bulk of our episode. And as a non-historian, and my colleague Nicole is not a trained historian either, she's an accounting lecturer, both of us were just nerding out the whole way along because we were able to access all these documents and start to line things up chronologically and it just felt like it was happening Mm. in the moment as well as in the past. This is Nicole and I speaking with Aaron Graham from University College London about accounting in the 19th century, which sounds pretty nerdy. And I think they were, they were pretty self-aware. Yes. I mean, partly this this is a, an accounting thing and I I could speak about imperial accounting for ages, but I'm not sure anyone would want me to. Oh, I Um, would. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm an accountant by trade, so I think this is... Oh, oh, there we go. I'm very excited by the idea of imperial accounting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this goes back to what what I was saying earlier about different funds. And as non-historians, we were blown away that we could access these things, that we could go and get a reel of microfilm, put it on, and then look at the payroll from the 46th Regiment from 1817. It's so specific, and we could actually do that. That's one of the interesting things, I think, about history and the digital age in particular, but also history in the last 30 or 40 years, that not only have the subjects of history been democratised, people are interested in the stories of everyday people, you know, mothers, children, Indigenous people, sort of stories from below, but also historians, the subjectivity of historians has become democratised and everyday people can be historians and do history and precisely do the sorts of things you're describing. Go on to Trove, you know, have that experience of research, synthesis, writing, bringing stories together. Yeah, it's incredibly empowering, I think. But I can see how it's also, it, it also complicates things because... The barbarians are at the gates. Yeah. If we can all tell the history, then whose history is it? But it seems to me that History Lab is doing something slightly more than that, which is that also as you're looking for these traces and nutting out the investigation that is your episode, you are meeting ethical challenges, you're learning how to weigh sources. So all of that stuff that you learn in the process of doing a history Mm. degree is done 
in public mm. so that people who do want to access through the digital age all the sorts of materials have some guide as to how they might make sense of that material. And I think going back to the methodology being the story, Nicole and I figuring these things out as we go along also lends a kind of understanding that and transparency that we're not coming to a single conclusion. We're sorting these things out as we go. It's a little bit awkward realizing oh, we should maybe get this person's voice in it as well, or we should consider this aspect. But we're not coming to a single truth necessarily. And the truth that we are coming to we're bringing the listener along so they know how we got there. The infrastructure of yeah of the historical mm-hmm. process. What do you think, Anna? Because you were I do history. Of, you do history, fishing. You brought those two things together <laughs> in the episode in season one. Mm. As someone that does history, you know there are some things we know, like the Holocaust did happen. Yeah, and there was genocide of Indigenous people in Australia. Some things are more true than others. And so how do you reconcile that democratization of history with these ways of knowing that generate certain kinds of outcome? Well, I think we need to be conscious of who has been doing history and who have been the gatekeepers of the truth. If you think of the archives that were created, for example, in Jason's podcast in you know, New South Wales archives in 1817, what were they collecting? And what stories weren't they collecting? And I think those are the questions that democratising history enables us to ask, not to necessarily question whether something happened or not, but to read between the lines and say, well, what isn't there as well as that? It's an and rather than a but sometimes, and that's a good thing. But when people talk about multiple narratives and multiple truths, it can often go into that hyper-relativism where, you know, we talk a lot about a post-fact age Mm. and a post-truth age. And... Do you want to go that far? That's a tricky question, characteristically coming from you, Tamsin. What I do, Anna. (laughs) I think these are questions that historians have to keep front and centre. You know, I think there are absolutely hierarchies of knowledge, but at the same time, as historians and as people who are educated in critical thinking, we need to get the context and understand, you know, the provenance of what how things were created so that even if there are debates on what happened, we have a capacity to actually put contrasting accounts side by side. And maybe they are irreconcilable, but that can be part of the story as well. That's not to say that there isn't a truth or that we shouldn't be trying to find out what happened. But history is different from what happened. The past is what happened. History is the process we come to understanding the past. And there are many different ways of doing that. So, Tom, Mm. there are loads of podcasts at the moment. True Crime is going absolutely gangbusters. I've been binging True Crime pods. What does the space mean for history? I mean, what more could be told about the past? And what's History Lab doing in this sort of podcast boom space? Mm. True crime is trying to go through an investigative process of uh, judging facts and making interpretations about them. And I suppose History Lab is trying to do that to a degree as well. But we have a lot more latitude in the way we interpret the things that we do. We bring different frameworks and, yeah, we do have some of the benefits of hindsight. What's interesting about history that adds another dimension is that we can develop and... uh, 
play around with even some philosophical ideas if I'm getting a bit too deep here, you know. Maybe in a true crime podcast, uh, one of the main features that sets a good one apart from another is by privileging voices that we don't usually get to hear. That's something that we're also trying to do with history. It becomes, a, it, it enters the philosophical realm perhaps implicitly to a degree when uh, we start thinking about how when we privilege certain voices, those voices uh, have control of knowledge and that knowledge then gives those ideas power and that group of people power. And not all of that is explicit in, in what we do, but we're hoping that it's one of the things that we can open up. Mm. So one of the ways that archives have been kept and those power relationships are enshrined in the kinds of materials often that were collected by big public institution, you know, until about 1920s or 30s, if you're really lucky, in the 1950s, they're going to be written archives. There's mm. not sound recordings. So how do you deal with that? Like you're doing a podcast about the 1820s. Like yeah. how do you... No recordings from that period. Yeah, where's Lachlan in yeah. all of this? There are multiple ways that you could do it from a producer's standpoint. You could get somebody to do Lachlan McQuarrie's voice, or you could get someone to read the archives. In our case, they're the bank's archives, so it would be 50 pounds in. September, 50 pounds out. So it wouldn't be that compelling. But, you know, we figured out ways to engage those archives and the written aspects of those archives in, I think, kind of clever ways. I hope Have you I got hope Pink Floyd's money going on in there somewhere? No, but actually we should. That's a really good <laughs> idea. No, we incorporate some of the written stuff by having an archivist read them in one case. And then we incorporate um, Lachlan Macquarie's correspondences to London in our episode by Nicole and I reading them together as we're finding them. So it does, I hope, it brings that written aspect of the archive to life. It's also not only are you um, sort of reading out that archive, but you're recording that moment of discovery, in a sense, mm. of you guys finding. Because archives by themselves are meaningless. They're just bits of paper in folder somewhere. It's only when we interact with them. Especially these banks archives. They have life. One of the other ways that we're trying to get around that fact that there's no tape anywhere before 1920 is that to varying degrees of success we reenact or dramatise certain things. And I know that this has come up as a bit of like significant feedback from the historians and other people that have engaged with the show. Are they into it? To, to varying degrees. Next. I think that some people definitely aren't. And we've tried in this season to play with that idea a little bit because, like you say, one of the issues with that is that we're kind of making an interpretation without necessarily backing that interpretation up, particularly in the in the episode that Nina Coppel's making. We're playing around with that idea a bit, so that should be fun. Give us an example on what's the episode. The episode uh, is about the spirit of Geneva. How we started thinking internationally and how we started believing in something bigger than the nation. We come across a character in that episode who we know is only written about at two or three degrees of remove. So we question the account of how it was written with the, the, the actor that is dramatising that scene. We go through the various ways that he might interpret exactly how he might voice that account, given that circumstances might have been completely different from any of the received interpretations that we have. 
That's fascinating. So that you're acknowledging in an audio sense that this is an act of interpretation. Hopefully, if it works, then yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, so, okay, I have a lot more questions about that. You are listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This pod is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with our very good friends 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes because it really helps other people to find us. And we love it. And we love it. You love it. Then everyone's happy. Today we are here with Tom Allison and Jason LeCuyer talking about History Lab podcast. And we are about, I'm about to ask them, what is coming up in season two of History Lab? Straight out of the gates is Jason's episode. Our episode is a little bit different to previous episodes from the first season and from the other episodes this season in that it's not based on a specific historian's research. Myself and Nicole Sutton, a lecturer at UTS Business, actually went out and did the investigating and kind of did the research. And we brought some historians in along the way to lend context and important scaffolding. But it's about the first deposit into the Bank of New South Wales. The idea for that was discovered on, on this the show, show. Mm. what, uh, a year ago, was it? It was I, Penny Stannard. She mentioned it as an interesting aside, and no one could get it out of their heads afterwards. Because it is something that's known and acknowledged, but it doesn't seem still that anyone's really looked thoroughly into the nature of this first deposit, which we did. And why is it a curious historical moment? It's curious because the deposit was made three days before the bank officially opened. And it was done in a way that could be seen as being done on the sly. That's uh, unusual in Australia's banking history. Yeah. Well, this is the founding moment of Australia's <laughs> banks. Right. That's what this is. Yeah. It's the first deposit ever, isn't it? Of, it is. Of money into a bank, into the first bank mm. in Australia. And, and it's, and it's and crazy. It's dodgy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and dodgy. Why? Because... This man deposited a massive amount of money, right? It was huge. Yeah, so simple question, how did he get the cash? Or you'd think it would be a simple question, how did he get the cash? But then we immediately ran into uh, the realization that there wasn't a single currency at the time, and it wasn't just as simple as he received the cash through you know, some kind of work. Uh, it was his salary or somebody paid him for coffee. It was complicated because... There was rum being traded. There were these IOUs floating around. There was the holy dollar in the dump, the Spanish coin that had been manipulated. There was no one currency. So it was just economic free-for-all, which made it actually really difficult to understand how he got this money. And we had to go to multiple sources and line multiple archives up to try to at least understand the context in which he would be making this money. And Tom, what what other episodes? There's four in season two. Yeah, so we're working with Eurydice Aroni, who's done a lot of work over decades with the sex work industry. You wouldn't know it, but New South Wales has some of the most radical sex work laws in in the world. And well-archived industry, interestingly. Well-archived to a degree. I mean, which goes back to what we were talking about before, whose voices are actually archived. And that's one of the brilliant things that we have in this episode. Because Eurydice has been working with sex work activists for a long time, she's known a lot of the people who were involved in 
fighting for those laws around sex work that criminalized their lives to be repealed. So we get to hear from the women, men, transgender people that worked in the industry. New South Wales is incredible in that I can work independently and go to a client's house or have him come to my work apartment or I can work at a brothel and in each of those circumstances I have recourse to legal action if something goes wrong and I am a worker whose theoretically job is respected as a job. Friends of mine who work in the US they're like you don't have to worry about being arrested like you can just go to work and that's like not a stress on your head. Number three, we're kind of looking at the shadow world of our mass-produced existence, if that doesn't sound too ominous. Oh, wow. <laughs> Heavy. So we're working with Jesse Stein. Jesse's been working with these pattern makers, recording oral histories with them. Pattern makers make the prototypes. Oh. They craft them for every single cast and mass-produced object that we have in our world. So have you ever thought about who made the first gummy bear? I mean... Yeah. The first Wheat Bix box. They're these at once incredibly precise and technical people, but they also have this other side to them. They're artists as well. Artisans of mass production. Yeah, exactly. I guess the reason why this becomes an issue for history is that we're slowly losing this trade. Here's one of those pattern makers. If I'm a pattern maker and I'm not making patterns, then what am I? And that hit me like a train. It hit me like a freight train. And uh, it was a really sobering thought. And that was when I thought, well, you're going to have to be something else because pattern making is not going to be around. Get used to it. So what are you going to do? And what's number four? I guess this is, in a way, a lot more topical than you might think because we're kind of at a point where we feel like a lot of the institutions that brought countries around the world together are somehow... We're losing our belief in them. And so we kind of wanted to go back and have a look at how that belief was first instituted. And it turns out that it was a revolutionary new way of seeing how we as holders of national identity exist in a broader international world. One of the complicated things in that is that to get to the international, you need to bring the national with you. Mm. And the national has problems in and of itself. Mm. Here's a clip from that episode. I guess you could say that I dedicated a number of years of my life to researching Anthony Martin Fernando, I was thoroughly captured by his amazing story, which took me to all kinds of interesting places I hadn't expected to go, uh, whether literally or through archives. And his voice comes through in many of those primary sources, including letters he wrote, diaries he kept, and some of the actions he took in street protest from the dock in courtrooms that were recorded in newspapers. But again, what is striking, I think, about the story is that it contradicts assumptions that, for example, Aboriginal people were, and indeed they were, under the uh, oppressive regime in Australia that limited their capacity for autonomous 
travel and we would assume travel overseas being impossible in this era. So you said the first episode comes out on the 28th of November. When do these other episodes follow? Hot on the heels. One a week. So there's some good binge listening for everyone over the Mm. summer. Yeah, if you don't actually want to put down your glam pen, you want to keep your your hand in, keep your form game on over (laughs) summer. Any thoughts about how season two has been different to season one? You were a producer on season one. Yeah. That great fishing episode. Yeah. Well, yeah, so... uh, (laughs) That um, was a good episode. (laughs) That was fun. That was really fun. It was was actually really fun. I mean, mean really fun. No, no, I mean, really. (laughs) Speaking as somebody who's usually with heads in books and writing, Mm. to think about that other dimension that we were alluding to before of seeing it in different contexts and making it in different ways was really cool. And we had the opportunity to go out to different locations. I think that was a different experience definitely for me compared to what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to organise production. I guess one of the key things that really comes out that that comes up each time we're working through the difficulties of each episode is is this basic question of how do we know and if we've forgotten that question at any point along the way in the mm. production process we're reminded of ourselves of it pretty quickly mm. because that's, you still can't just make like, stuff up we try to to go back to sometimes. your point <laughs> question earlier Tamsin about yeah truth and relativity you still can't make it up the Spirit of Geneva and the Skeleton of Empire. What's that? That's a good title, right? Yeah. That's yeah. A good title. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And yours should be called Follow the Money. Mm, yeah. That seems the most logical. With something colony. But... Follow the Money. Yeah. I got a little bit of inspiration recently. Lauren Carroll, who's been giving some feedback on the script, said that she was reminded of Mr. Banks from Mary Poppins uh, <laughs> when when she was listening to our episode because in particular we, we contact this historian from University College London who's a little bit of a Mr. Banks character and uh, and so I've been I watched Mary Poppins again for the first time in ages and have been obsessing over the Mr. Banks telling the kids if you invest your tuppence it Invest firmly in the bank. And he, t- he tries to explain compound interest to these little kids that are just really confused. And I've been drawing inspiration from this, you know, this firm English idea of building trust in a financial institution. Maybe that'll fit in with the, yeah. you know, some, if it's not copywritten. Some sting content there. Mm. Yeah. That's sort of it, isn't it, for our final Glam City episode of Ooh. 2018? I know I'm crying. You're crying? Yep. But so many museums to visit in the meantime and galleries and libraries and archives. Like it doesn't end. But we will be back next year. Do not worry with some fresh voices and some familiar ones as we explore uh, the glam sector. And in the meantime, as we said, you can listen back to the Glam City back catalogue on the 2SER page, which is 2SER.com. And, uh, of course, you can also check out the new season of History Lab, which you can find at historylab.net or by Googling History Lab or by putting it into any podcast app that you know takes your fancy. Like History Lab, Glam City is a podcast made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. And finally, thanks to Tom and Jason for coming on the show and taking us behind the scenes of History Lab Season 2. Glam out. Glam out. I miss you. (laughs) Shucks. Put that in. (laughs) Listeners, Anna and I get on quite well. (laughs) 
Missing out. I've been missing We're just good friends. <laughs> okay, ready? 